0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. It's been a week since the Trump administration assassinated Qasem Soleimani, perhaps the most important general in modern Iran. Soleimani's assassination set off a round of Iranian retaliation and brought the United States and Iran to a kind of open war, briefly, a continuation of the shadow war they have been fighting for quite some time. With the dust having settled and it looking a little bit like there had been some de-escalation, we can now step back and assess what happened, was what the Trump administration did a good idea, and what could the possible broader implications be for U.S. policy in the region? Welcome to Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, where we're going to talk about all of that. It's our first episode of the new year of 2020, and we are starting with, with a really big deal crisis. I am here, as always, with Jen Williams and Alex Ward.
1: Hey, Hey, what a year this week has been!
0: Uh, yeah, it's been it's been pretty long, I would say. Uh, we've all been working really long hours and are quite tired, uh, but I think that will make our episode more entertaining. Hopefully, I don't know—we're tired and grumpy. That's how it works, right? <laughs> I that's think what, so. That's, where yeah. that's better. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, look, in the first half, we're going to do our normal worldly thing, but in the second half, we've got a really interesting interview that Alex did with Senator Tom Udall of New Mexico. Uh, Senator Udall was in this now infamous briefing about the administration's decision to attack Soleimani, which we'll talk about more later, but one that has pissed off even Republican senators, and so we'll get an inside perspective on that. But first, the Soleimani strike itself, Jen, the past week— what has it been like? What what has happened, really? What has it been like is a loaded question.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's a hell of a question. Uh, well, since uh, the actual strike happened while I was driving back from Texas to D.C., uh, it's been a bit of a whirlwind. So, so just to recap, at the end of December, there was a series of incidents that happened in Iraq. We had the killing of a U.S. contractor in Iraq and then the attempted storming of the U.S. embassy in Baghdad by some members of an Iranian-backed militia force in Iraq. That basically seems to have been what triggered the Trump administration to go ahead and decide to take out Qasem Soleimani. Qasem Soleimani, for those who don't remember, is the head of the IRGC's Quds Force, so it's the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. This is basically like um, a really powerful kind of paramilitary, military force that does all sorts of special operations and intelligence. It's this very elite force. It's
0: like a combination almost of the CIA and uh, the U.S. special forces.
2: Yeah, but it also has this really interesting uh, role that's that's unique in Iran. And its job is basically to defend and protect the Islamic revolution. So it's a very special place in Iranian— of politics and society, uh, incredibly powerful. They have their fingers in all parts of the Iranian economy. And Qasem Soleimani was the head of this Quds Force, which was like the elite special forces kind of branch. He was the guy who was one of the primary architects of Iran's entire kind of regional strategy of building up and developing and supporting all of these militias and proxy groups all around the region uh, to kind of further Iran's regional goals. So the Trump administration decided to, to kill that guy, and they did.
0: And that, that to my mind, and to, under any reasonable definition of an act of war, that, that was it, right? Like that, that was essentially the first shot in, in a U.S.-Iran war. It just turns out that Iran didn't want it to escalate at all. The Iranian response, as far as I can tell, and, and Alex, you've talked to people in the government about these sorts of things, as far as I can tell anyway, it was, it was a few missiles directed at U.S. bases in Iraq. There was advance warning given to the U.S. through the Iraqi government as intermediaries. Uh, and while it showed off Iran's military capabilities, the missile hits seemed very precise. It, it was not designed to kill any American troops and thus escalate the crisis further.
1: I'm actually not too sure about that. Really? Um, yeah. The re- So I think the debate's open. Based on the precision of the missiles, the fact that they actually hit buildings, one could assume—like, it's, it's hard to know whether or not Iran had intelligence about whether troops would be in there or not. It's not like they hit empty patches. I mean, this is—Al-Assad Air Base is a sprawling compound inside of Iraq, and so there were places it could hit where— Frankly, no one was going to be that early in the morning. The fact that they hit actual buildings and helicopters and tents with precision, I mean, quite good precision based on the satellite images we're seeing, it's not out of the realm of possibility to think that they were trying to kill someone.
0: But then again, every Iranian statement afterwards was emphasizing de-escalation. We're not going to strike again. We don't want to do this. we If the Americans hit us back, then we'll hit them back even harder. That's true. Right. Like, there are whole messaging around it wasn't, we want to start a bigger war. It was, this is our shot. If you fire again, we'll fight back. But that's it.
1: Right, which was kind of mirroring the American one, right? Like, the U.S. killed Soleimani, and Trump goes out and says, this was to, this was meant to stop a war. And so Iran then, sh- you know, shoots their 16 missiles now, according to the U.S. government, and hits a couple targets. And there were folks aligned with Iranian media, which is close to the Iranian government, saying, yes, we killed people, and this is all well and good, um, but then, of course, it looks like officially no U.S. and no Iraqi casualties. Uh, and that's what led some people in the Trump administration elsewhere to go, well, maybe they purposely tried to miss. And it's hard to know right now. There's no evidence one way or the other. But I'm not as—I was in that camp earlier, and since I saw the satellite images and I've talked to some experts who study these kinds of things, it, it changed my mind a bit because the precision of these missiles and the kinds of targets that they hit makes it seem like it's it's not— impossible that they were trying to hit America.
2: So I will say really quickly, um, the fact that the Iranians did call the Iraqis and said, hey, we're planning to hit these targets does perhaps suggest that they really didn't want to kill people. But also it's important to note these were not actually U.S. bases. These are Iraqi bases that house large numbers of U.S. forces. Right. So you, you know, Iran is a Close ally and is very closely integrated within uh, parts of the Iraqi government, so it makes sense that they would call the Iraqis and say, "Hey, this is going to happen," because there are Iraqi soldiers and you know personnel at that base. There are also NATO uh, troops and and personnel at. These facilities that are you know, not American, so there are a lot of people there. And you know, when you do these kinds of strikes that are meant to be big symbolic strikes, but that are meant to be you know still limited um, and curtailed, that that is kind of standard operating procedure, right? To call the other side, or at least to call like an intermediary. So when we saw, uh, you know, for example, when the U.S. struck uh, in Syria, in the aftermath of the chemical weapons attack, um, you know, U.S. did some advance calling and let. Yeah, the Russians, I believe, know what was going on and basically like, hey, you guys tell the Syrians to get your people out of the way. So, you know, we're going to hit some planes. We're going to hit some runways. We're going to do some damage, right? But we don't want this to escalate into a full-scale war, etc. So that's kind of, in that sense, my mind, that puts it more in the camp of we didn't want to kill people or lots of people. Uh, We just wanted to do a lot of damage and make it clear. But I think the biggest thing is that, they are very clearly demonstrating, we could have killed you if we wanted. think that's the most important point.
1: Totally. And I'm, I think I'm in the, just for a fine point on it, I think I'm in the, we tried to kill a few people camp. One, it, based on some reports, the warning to Iraq didn't come that, like, fought, like that ahead of the strikes. So the U.S. didn't get much warning from that part. Also, U.S. intelligence and early warning systems seeing the missiles warned U.S. troops in these areas, an Erbil and an Al-Assad airbase of the attack. And so I actually think part of the reasons for the low casualties from everyone is these early warnings and this intelligence that led people to stay in bunkers, basically, and, like, to be in safe areas for for quite amount of time as the missiles were dropping. I think that is more responsible for the no casualties than Iranian intentions.
0: In other words, then, on that assessment, just to explain why this debate matters, Right. Right? If that were right, then Iran would have been willing to risk greater escalation because Trump had been very clear that the loss of American life would prompt a response or at least had indicated that. I don't I don't know if clear is the right word yeah, it's, to it's use <laughs> with you with this administration's messaging, um but but
2: I think it's pretty fair to say that if a significant number of Americans had been killed or even, you know, depending on what the, the threshold would be, that the Trump administration would have had to respond in a very forceful manner.
0: In other words, either the Iranians were attempting to avoid casualties and thus they really didn't want it to escalate or U.S. capabilities slash intelligence were good enough to avoid what Iran wanted, which which actually could have prompted a very serious escalation, indicating that the initial decision to attack Soleimani was as risky as some of us, I, I really all of us, I think, in this room thought it was to begin with. I think that's a, that's a fair assessment of the stakes of the debate here.
2: Uh, I mean, yeah, I definitely think it, it's a risky move. I think we tend to uh, disagree on whether or not it was a risk that we should have taken.
0: Um, disagree,
1: disagree.
2: But so I just— to to kind of put a pin in where we are here. Uh, Either way, the end result as of right now, again, just as of right now, things could change and we'll talk about that. But it seems like either Iran got lucky or they did it on purpose. But the strike that they made didn't end up being the kind of strike that would necessitate a massive U.S. military response. And that's kind of where we are now. We had Trump come out Wednesday and give this... uh, at times a little bit odd uh, statement from the White House basically saying, you know, we don't want to do any further military action against Iran, essentially trying to de-escalate in some ways and say, look, we're done. It's over. We did our thing. They did their thing. You know, he had that tweet the night of, you know, just a few hours after the attack. All is well. All is well. So far, so good, which was super weird. That's where we are now. So I think, you know, given that we can now, you know, like Zach said, look back and assess, like, was this a good idea? Was this a bad idea? Um, and then what does this mean going forward?
0: There, there are two things that we can talk about when we discuss this. One is, uh, at the time, what do, do we think that the Trump administration made the right call in terms of the immediate consequences and the risks that were involved in them? And second is, in the long run, will this have proven to be a good idea? And I think that second question is not knowable. Um, I think the risks are actually even higher in the long run than they were in the short run. But I think in the immediate term, uh, this was incredibly reckless on the Trump administration's part. Like Qasem Soleimani is, as every Democratic presidential candidate has admitted at one point, a bad guy, though most of them have gotten raked over the coals from the left for saying this, but it's not wrong, right? He's The guy is, is responsible for a, a truly astonishing amount of uh, murder in the region, and particularly uh, the war crimes in Syria that he helped mastermind, Iran's policy of propping up Assad, uh, is is sort of a world historical crime. Yeah. That that being said, and
2: also for the U.S., he literally was behind some of the most horrific casualties against U.S. forces during the Iraq war.
0: Look, that, that, that being said, like, American foreign policy is not and should not be, let's go kill all the bad guys everywhere in the world, right? There are lots of them, and killing people is not the most effective way to deal with problems or even the problems created by people who are, you know— murderous and backed by states, right? Like the difference between attacking Soleimani and someone like Osama bin Laden or al-Baghdadi, the ISIS head, is that he's affiliated with a government and governments have this tremendous bureaucratic and military architecture behind them that terrorist groups just don't have. So while you can fairly describe Soleimani as a terrorist, I think, uh, he's much more easily replaceable because he's part of a bureaucratic organization that can promote from within to have somebody run the organization. And two, you risk really, really serious forms of retaliation that aren't just immediate strikes from a state that you don't risk from a government. Unless you want a war, I, I I don't see any reason why this is a justifiable calculation. Jen, I'm going to assume you disagree with that.
2: <laughs> I mean, there, there are parts of that I certainly agree with. I think your analysis in terms of like the the difference between striking Baghdadi and, you know, in terms of the risk and striking Soleimani are absolutely spot on. On balance, again, I know we're talking about was this, you know, in the immediate, you know, without knowing how Iran was going to respond, which we do now it was a calculated risk, right? And I definitely think you're right to say that there was a, a high likelihood. I mean, there was no chance that Iran was not going to respond in some way to the killing of Qasem Soleimani. Um, but I, I think where I disagree uh, and where I come down on on the side that this is um, a positive, the fact that, one, I'm just really glad Qasem Soleimani doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and I'm, I'm not uh, sorry for saying that. He was a— an evil bastard and uh, was responsible for deaths of all sorts of people and not just like he's a bad guy and he did bad things, let's get rid of him. He was actively and continually and going to, for the foreseeable future for a very long time, continue to plan attacks, to foment attacks, to arm and train and support very bad actors all over the region who are incredibly threatening. So this was, you know, we can talk about whether it's an imminent threat or not. He poses just by existing an ongoing, very serious threat to the world. But I will also say that the issue of replacing him is, is I think, more complicated. Yes, he has already been replaced by, by you know, his deputy. But he, Qasem Soleimani, was— so incredibly integral as the architect of this entire regional policy. His individual personal relationships that he built over decades uh, were something that can't be replaced in the sense that his deputy was given a portfolio. The things that he covered were the non important issues. So, Suleimani covered you know, in the portfolio of building up militias, everything from, you know, Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, the the big ones. Um, And his deputy didn't handle any of that portfolio. So now he's coming in and there's this massive gap that he has to get up to speed. He doesn't have any of those relationships. He doesn't know anything of the, you know, institutional knowledge that that Soleimani has. And that is a massive, massive blow to the IRGC.
0: Yeah, I'm deeply skeptical of that kind of argument. You could make those sorts of our claims when it comes to virtually anybody who is the head, uh, an effective, I should say, head of an organization. But it turns out there's like a pretty deep body of political science literature at this point on decapitation strikes and killing people who are the heads of organizations. And the consistent finding is that when somebody is at the head of an organization where you have an institutional structure— <coughs> and not just, uh, you know, just a sort of charismatic leader, one guy who is holding everything together through sheer force of personality, which is just not the case with any functional military and the Quds Force, whatever you want to say about it, is a functional military organization. People can be brought up to speed on the issues that you're describing. They can be brought into the uh, organizational culture and replaced, but but also like more fundamentally, uh, what does this accomplish? Even if you kill one guy who has made Iran's Uh, general foreign policy more effective, the thrust of Iran's overall strategy to the Middle East will not change. Khamenei is not going to say, oh, crap, we got to get out of Syria now. We got to stop supporting the Houthis in Yemen. No, they're going to keep doing that. And moreover, they're going to probably intensify some of their other activities, even if there's no more military retaliation. And I'm not sure that's true. Even if there is no more, they've already said they're no longer as a result of this abiding by the uh, uranium enrichment agreements or restrictions on the Iran nuclear deal. And those are just, that's a massively big deal. To me, that suggests that Iran, if it wants to, might might push for a bomb again. And then we're back to this whole situation we had before the nuclear deal, which is either Iran gets nuclear capabilities or we actually go to a really, really, really big war, not like this little one we saw this week, to stop them. And and those are both awful outcomes.
2: Knowing this stuff, uh, I think you're vastly, vastly underestimating the degree to which he was actually a charismatic leader whose individual strategy and individual ability uh, was actually what built the Quds Force and what actually made the IRGC and the entire regional strategy – possible it was him who basically ran that and he's the one who built you know yes he wasn't by himself but to a large degree he is the mastermind of that entire kind of regional like he was the the one who was able to link Lebanon Yemen Syria Iraq all together into a grand strategy in a way that wouldn't necessarily have happened in any way shape or form if he didn't exist so The fact that he is now gone, yes, all of those things now exist, right? But there's a whole future of like decades and going forward that he will now not be to link additional things because the Middle East is not going to stay the way it is just today, right? There are going to be additional conflicts. There are going to be additional issues that come out that he could have exploited that they now will not have that strategic a genius, I would say. I, I, he's a f- terrible guy, but he was really good at what he did. And I think you're just vastly, vastly underestimating how incredibly central he was to that. Uh,
0: before we we end the segment, we'd, I'd be remiss not to talk about the the fallout in Washington in addition to the fallout uh, in Tehran and the Middle East, because there's now a really big debate on the Hill about— whether or not to rein in Trump's military powers, right? Because one of the the argument that the Trump administration made on, on the legal front domestically here is that there was an imminent threat from Soleimani, as Jen suggested earlier. But imminent threat usually means, like, something's about to happen, not just this guy is plotting in general and that you need to kill him to stop it. Uh, but there's been very little evidence of that released publicly, basically none, right? And then there was this, this briefing on Capitol Hill for members of the House and the Senate that seem to have gone awry, Alex?
1: Very awry. Um, It even led certain Republicans, including uh, Senator Mike Lee, to say that that was the worst briefing he had heard in his nine years in the Senate. Um, So a little bit of inside detail, and we have a piece on the site that I wrote that was inside uh, some of these meetings, and we'll link to it in the show notes. I talk about it with Senator Tom Udall in the next segment. But the main thrust is the administration's briefers, which was like Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Gina Haspel, CIA director. They offered very little information to the point that multiple lawmakers told me that they could have that they basically all the information that they heard, they could have gotten off of newspapers from Vox.com and from television. Um, that when they were pressing on what was an imminent threat. All they got was a window of days. Um, so what we've heard sort of was it days or weeks. It seems to be days. That was the imminent threat window. But so that depends on what your definition of imminent is. Is days imminent or is it seconds or hours, whatever it may be?
0: This, this matters a lot, though, because if it's not imminent, then it's very hard to understand what the legal justification for striking Soleimani would be.
1: In the House session, for example, there were certain Democratic lawmakers who were Asking multi part questions and trying to press the officials to give more. And at one point, an official shushed these lawmakers, saying, like, you know, no more. Um, when some of the officials received tough questions from Democrats, they turned to their Republican colleagues and ignored the Democratic questions so they could get a softball. And there was even a moment where, and I don't know who, but some lawmaker asked a question of, of Gina Haspel, the CIA director, uh, about an issue related to the Soleimani killing intelligence, not directly. And she said, well, just read the report. And there were size in the room because— And what is the report? This report, sorry. This report was involved intelligence-related. That would have had something to do related to the Soleimani discussion. So it's
2: like a classified report they had given to Congress. Correct. Okay, cool.
1: And so Haspel said, read the report. And there were size in the room. They were being like, just brief us now. You're here. Brief us. And she said, well, it's a lengthy report. Um, so— there's, and so like so this is what led Mike Lee to be angry, Senator Rand Paul to be angry, all Democrats to be angry like they learned nothing out of this. Uh, The administration heard its case for why killing Soleimani was a good idea. And it's even led some senators that weren't on board with the War Powers Resolution to now join on to it. And so this administration completely bungled this briefing and heard its own
2: And the War Powers Resolution is? The
1: War Powers Resolution is a congressional effort to basically make Trump come to Congress before— going to war with Iran that needs an authorization?
2: I'll just say, I think, and this is something Alex, you and I have talked about, uh, at length uh, in the newsroom over the past couple days, I think the administration bungled uh, the messaging on this. I think... Trying to say that it was an imminent threat set a bar that I don't think they were actually ready to be able to prove. I think there are other ways that they could have presented this and argued legal justification that wouldn't have involved the imminent threat issue of assassination. There are several other ways that could potentially have been way more easy to argue legally uh, that they chose not to. They chose to use that and they have now essentially boxed themselves in and now set themselves up for this kind of debacle that we're seeing.
0: I I find this to a degree – promising, right? Like, while the Trump administration uh, has bungled this argument, I didn't expect anything more from them. Fair. And if if something could galvanize Congress to start taking more authority when it comes to war-making to rein in the powers of the presidency, which had gone way too far under Bush and Obama. This wasn't just a Trump-era thing, right? It's just the, there's now all, almost unilateral authority by the president to start wars, not legally, but functionally in terms of Congress's lack of willingness to act, when it comes to trying to take hard votes when it comes to war. So if the Trump administration had to, like, from my read of what's going on, not that I have any more inside information, but it really seems like they're lying about the stuff. If they lied about the nature of the threat or at least deliberately misled Congress in a lot of ways in the public, and now they're going to suffer some consequences because even Republicans are angry about it, great. I'm glad they screwed up.
2: Is that the killing of Soleimani – does have good consequences. <laughs> <Yes>. Zach Beach. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, wow. is now on the record. <laughs> Nailed you. All right.
0: All right yeah, we're, you, we're, you got him. <laughs> um, yes. Yes. Okay, Jen. That's how you <laughs> wanted to interpret that. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, Alex is going to talk in depth about these legal issues and the overall arguments surrounding Soleimani's death with Senator Udall.
1: Hey, Worldly listeners. Alex Ward here. And I am with Senator Tom Udall. Senator, thanks for joining Worldly. Thank you, Alex. Great to be with you today. It's our pleasure. So I want to start off uh, with the intelligence briefing that the administration gave to members of Congress on Wednesday. You were pretty critical of what you heard, and I want to read uh, for for our listeners what you said on the Senate floor after you received the briefing along with your colleagues. And you said, The president has not supplied convincing evidence that his strike stopped an imminent attack on U.S. forces. And later you said the strike risked more American deaths and greater instability than if the president had taken a different course. In short, I doubt that killing Soleimani was legal, and I'm even more confident that it was a mistake. So question one is if you can go into any more specifics about what happened inside that briefing that led you to that conclusion. And then in two, with even a bit more sleep, uh, has your view of the situation gotten better or worse?
3: Well, first of all, on the the briefing— My uh, cousin, Senator Mike Lee, I think he said this was one of the worst briefings he ever uh, had in terms of going into that top security skiff and getting a briefing there, and and I would agree with him. This was a—it was not an impressive briefing in terms of outlining for us the real um, key in what was going on. In the president's head, what were our military advisors saying? What what was it that led up to the so-called um, eminence in this particular incident? And I, I, uh, I, they didn't explain it. There was a lot of chatter about. Uh, the idea that uh, there was going to be some kind of attack and that Soleimani was there on the ground. Uh, but it was clear from the reporting that he was going back to Iran to talk to the supreme leader before he did anything. So I I, I felt they really failed on the the imminence of this attack. And if you don't have an imminent attack, you ought to be going uh, to Congress to ask us to go to war. So I I think uh, they're on very, very shaky ground, and and uh, that's after thinking about it, sleeping on it, and and uh, being disturbed that, in a way, I. I I know the president is trying to portray this, that this is all peace now, uh, but I don't think he's backed off in any way. And you remember the first statement he made, he drew a red line on nuclear weapons. So uh, I think we're still in a very, very dangerous dangerous, uh, situation. President Trump's escalation pushed us to the brink of a disastrous and illegal war with Iran, and he really created this crisis.
1: So we're going to get into that last part in a a second, but I do want to pin down a little more on this intelligence briefing because I had my own reporting and some from my colleagues. They said that when— Basically, what I heard was when the administration was making the case for what imminence was, it came down to days, uh, not weeks, and that it wasn't as short of a timeline uh, as maybe the administration had been leading on. Was that your impression as well, that the
3: timeline they were effectively arguing was days? That was exactly. They they said days or weeks. Uh, When you're talking about imminent, uh, the classic situation is where a force is gathering at your border and about ready to invade your country. So that's true eminence. When they're there and about ready to come in, you could imagine with the United States, a naval force just off our coast that's prepared to uh, unleash weapons and to, and to invade. There was nothing like that situation they described. Now they, they hid behind, even though we're in the most secure facility and we have the ability to hear the background, they didn't want to talk about sources. They didn't want to talk about methods. That's understandable. But I think they could have given us more information if they had it. My belief is they just didn't have it. And this was a, a, a lot of a bluster when it comes to the, the eminence that an imminent attack that they're talking about. So f- from my
1: reporting as well, what I heard is that in neither briefing, the officials didn't give lawmakers, neither uh, didn't give them a place, a time, or a method. Is that consistent with what you heard?
3: Yeah, I I don't think we were really told um, the full parameters of of an imminent attack and what was really meant by that. I think they were just hiding behind a, a number of things, even though we were in a facility that was secure and nobody else would find out about it and uh, and i think we we understand i understand being on the defense appropriation subcommittee the importance of keeping methods and and uh, sources secret so final point on this before we go to a broader discussion but was there
1: anything that you learned in that briefing, obviously without divulging sensitive information, but was there anything you learned in that briefing that you couldn't have learned from a Vox.com article or an online article or watching news on television?
3: I I, I don't think so. Most of the time, and I think I was remarking to one of my Republican uh, friends who's a senator, that that many times we learn a little bit more when we watch the television after. One of these briefings where the briefing officials go to the cameras and talk, and and it's kind of remarkable. You you thought you were in a secret briefing, and then they went out and said everything, and maybe a little bit more to the cameras. And he said he said back to me, I'm not going to name him, but he said, you know, unfortunately, the longer I'm here, I think there's real truth in that.
1: Hmm. And now, of course, we're seeing the administration make the uh, saying that, oh, we couldn't give them all this information, but you know. Trust us. We have this. We have the information. It says that the the threat was imminent and there should be no discord among Congress with the executive because, of course, uh, that would show disunity in a long term struggle with Iran.
3: Well, I I really object to that, Alex. I I think that uh, uh, they could trust us. I think the people they should really be trying to build trust with are the American people. They should be trying to make the case uh, that this was an imminent attack with the American people in a public way. If you want to go go to war with Iran, I think you've got to do it uh, by selling it to the American people and they seem to want uh, to do this behind the scenes on a top secret basis without really making the case. And, and I don't agree in any way with the, the other thing they said about unity. I mean, the wonderful thing about our country is, is debate – Uh, I'm a patriotic American. I believe very much in our armed forces. I believe they do uh, wonderful things around the world, not only in in, uh, the military arena, but they're always uh, forced into these nation-building situations where you hear uh, good stories about the kinds of things our troops do. And let's not forget, it's the policymakers that make the choices to put them there. Uh, So I really respect them. And and I've talked to many of them back in my home state and across the world when I travel, um, and they take their jobs seriously. But we need to, when we make decisions, respect the fact that young men and women are out there, could lose their lives, have lost their lives. And that's why we speak up, to make sure that there isn't a mother or father who loses a son uh, when it's a situation that that uh, uh, they shouldn't have been in because the policymakers made a mistake to put them there. So let
1: me give you the argument that I'm sure you've heard already before and from the administration especially about why the why the U.S. needed to kill Soleimani. So Soleimani is killed. There's worry about a, a large-scale war busting out, right? Well, all-out all war is on the way. And then we see Iran counterattack a couple days later, and it's not as aggressive as people uh, expect it to be. And the signal that everyone gets from it is that Iran is trying to save face with the strike and trying to de-escalate. And then we see the uh, Trump administration take that message. And now for the moment, it looks like we're not headed to a massive confrontation. And so the question for you, sir, is, was maybe killing Soleimani the right call in that situation? Because some would say that that de-escalated the crisis that we were headed toward? I,
3: I, I don't uh, uh, think so. There's no, there's no doubt that, that he was listed on the uh, terrorist list and that he was a, a bad actor. But you know, taking out bad actors around the world can have many unintended consequences. Killing Saddam Hussein didn't make us safer, uh, but it did get us into an endless war. Uh, the president has rec- recklessly escalated to the point where we're on the brink of a war that will cost American lives, and, and he's thrown diplomacy out the window. Uh, does anyone have any confidence that the president— and his administration have actually planned this out and prepared for what comes next. I really don't see any strategy. But one of the other points to make on on General Soleimani, and he's much more than a general. He's probably the second most powerful figure in Iran, or was. Um, General Soleimani had worked with uh, militias and groups in, in in what many would call the Shia Crescent over there in um, in in Syria, in Lebanon, and in, in Iran, uh, and and in Iraq. And in that area, um, I think he had an awful lot of control about what went on. Now, by taking him out and being such a major figure, I think one of the discussions we're hearing is about the instability that now will be in place. You're, you're going to have militia leaders who are just going to take things into their own hands. Uh, we're still in a very, very scary situation. And that's why I've been fighting since 2018 and 2019 to get a vote. On, on this uh, Unconstitutional War with Iran Act, which is bipartisan. It's sponsored by Senator Paul. I mean, we need to step up to the plate. Congress needs to get out and say, uh, this is our job to declare war. This is, We we are the ones that are in the middle of war and peace. That's what the role that was given us in Article I of the Constitution. And we shouldn't take this approach that the president is saying, I can do whatever I want under Article 2. That is the most expansive reading of the executive we've seen in a long time. So the argument against that that some people would say is, well,
1: Iran did kill an American, right? They killed an American contractor. And so the U.S. did have a reason to respond and go after someone who may have had a hand in killing the contractor, which your legislation would not prohibit that, right? Because this would be in self-defense and in response, whereas yours would say if the president wanted to start a war with Iran, he would have to come to Congress for authorization. The, the, the killing of Soleimani is a little separate from that. Is that correct, or am I misunderstanding that?
3: Yeah, no, I think you're understanding that. that, that, that what we're talking about here is, is when it comes to starting a war the president needs to come to the Congress, just like uh, President Obama did when he got into Syria and realized he was on shaky constitutional ground. He kicked it to the Congress, and there wasn't really any, any appetite in Congress to say we're we're going uh, to declare war in that situation. So uh, they, this is we wouldn't be trying to tie the president's hands in terms of. Uh, protecting Americans, and there's a specific provision that's part of law and it's part of the, the constitutional doctrine that's grown out of the constitutional authorities. And, and, uh, uh, but what we see here is, is what happened with Iraq. Uh, we had the run-up to Iraq, which was a series of incidents that eventually got us to the point we were in a war. Uh, and that's what the run-up is looking like here with, with what has come from taking us out of the JCPOA and the maximum pressure campaign. We have pushed this country, Iran, into the corner, um, and they're responding um, back in a number of ways, and, and it keeps escalating, and that's what worries me. It, the,
1: but isn't it fair to say, as some people argue, that the president hasn't shown much desire For a war with Iran in the sense that, you know, Iran bombed oil tankers, Saudi oil fields, shot down a U.S. drone, and we didn't respond with military force. We did increase sanctions, but we didn't respond with military force. The only time that we've used it so far with Trump against Iran was after Iran killed an American, which the administration claims was an act of retaliation and and of self-defense for an imminent attack. I mean, is is there anything, are you genuinely worried that Trump wants a war with Iran?
3: I, I think the behavior is what I look at more than what he says, because what he says on a daily basis is inconsistent, sometimes uh, one statement and then another statement 180 degrees from that. So I, I look at the behavior, and the behavior looks to me like uh, pulling us out of the agreement on nuclear weapons, the maximum pressure campaign, the sanctions that are in place are putting enormous pressure on Iran, and they are reacting, uh, and then we're reacting back, and it's building up. Uh, and we came very close uh, uh, within 10 minutes, I believe, when the, the uh, drone incident happened. The president said he, he almost took an action to, to uh, uh, kill 150 people. I mean, and, and then he talked about more devastation. So I, I'm convinced that, that we're in a very difficult precarious situation where uh, we need the Congress to act. If We should be holding hearings on this. We should be very public about what is happening. Uh, unfortunately, in the Senate, uh, Mitch McConnell has shut us down. But on the other hand, we're going to see this resolution voted on in the House, and we're going to do everything we can over here because it's a privilege resolution uh, to get another vote.
1: Do you believe that if uh, the Senate were holding hearings on the administration's case for striking Soleimani that— you might find that the administration was overhyping the intelligence.
3: I think we ought to do those hearings. I, I uh, they seem to be rather than hyping, hiding the intelligence to us in that hearing, uh, that closed hearing we had in the in the secure facility. They didn't want to tell us what they really knew. They just basically said trust us.
1: And I know it's a hypothetical, but if they shared the intelligence with you, and if it showed an imminent attack was about to happen. Uh, would you
3: then support the Soleimani strike? Well, if you're, if you're looking back and you do all the hypotheticals, I mean, uh, we have to know what f- the facts are much broader than what you're talking about. I mean, that, I, I would want to know much, much more detail in terms of whether America's going to war. And that's why I keep advocating we should do this out in public. And, and I remember when uh, George W. Bush was getting ready to make the decision to invade Iraq, several of his advisors said, if you really wanna go to war, you gotta make the case with the American people and you have to scare them to death because nobody wanted to go to war at the time. And I think that's where our country is now, 18, 19 years later, uh, people are sick and tired of these endless wars. Uh, They're sick and tired of the fact that they haven't seen uh, things come from spending $7 trillion in this arena and and there isn't a, a more peaceful situation and and I think people f- get the sense Uh, we could have done a lot more diplomatically. It's not that we would have been isolationists and removed ourselves. We should have been working with them in a much different way to build a force that wasn't so dependent upon us so that they could take over these matters and we could tend to the other uh, bigger issues like China and Russia and uh, the areas in the world where they're very active that that, uh, we should be paying attention to.
1: And just to get to the Iranian side of this for a a moment, there are some who would argue that, of course, and and, well, as you just said, you know, the Trump administration's maximum pressure campaign against Iran has backed Iran to a corner and they're going to respond. But there are some who would say, you know, Iran did not have to respond in the way that it has, that the bombing, the oil fields, the tankers. Downing the U.S. drone, that Iran could have found other ways to compel the administration to lift the sanctions. Do you feel that this that Iran has a lot of blame for this crisis as well?
3: Well, I I I think it takes two to go to war, and and we clearly have a uh, a situation where two countries are are right on the brink of war, and so I, I I just think on our side with our president and the way our constitution functions, we should have a public debate about this and and he should be really clear about what his motives are and what what really worries me is the impulsiveness and the and the uh, lack of strategy the, the it doesn't seem like he has a foreign policy team that is trying to evaluate all of the consequences that are out there and do this in a serious way and that's the way you have to do foreign policy. You, you, If you're going to put down red lines, you really have to think about uh, the consequences two and three and uh, four times down the line uh, as to what's going to happen. And even then, things can be uh, unintended.
1: If Iran were to respond with a you know, a, a series of attacks or a massive attack that kills multiple Americans, whether it be troops, diplomats, personnel? Has experts I've been talking to predict Iran will, will be doing some sort of attacks down the line? Um, it's unclear how big, but let's say they do. Is the president justified in seeking a war authorization from you all, and do you think you would support it at that point?
3: I, I would want to know the full circumstances. The thing that that uh, worries me the most is is I think uh, they're not going to come to us. They're just going to uh, go into this and say it's 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 a war, and we have a right to do it. And they've taken an action that we have to respond to. So, how should we handle the
1: Iran crisis then? If it were President Udall, what would we do from this moment on?
3: Well, I'm I'm <laughs> as you know, I'm not running for president. <laughs> but but right, right, right. I believe first of all, we should we should work with our allies and sign back up. Uh, to the agreement where China and Russia and the Europeans, uh, we, we had uh, limited them on nuclear weapons. The most destructive thing in the region region, and the most dangerous thing in the region uh, was the fact that, that Iran was on a path to get a nuclear weapon. And because of this agreement, uh, we had a great deal of confidence that uh, there was a over a year breakout period uh that those kinds of things uh, were not going to happen. And then we had inspectors on the ground. Now, the inspectors are still there. I don't know how much they're uh, being allowed to do, but they're still there on the ground. That gives me a little bit of comfort. But that's the first thing I would do. And then secondly, uh, you be willing to negotiate uh, without Inciting and stirring it up uh, every time there's there's some kind of incident, uh, and that's what the escalation that I'm worried about. I don't. I. I. I think if you showed that you were trustworthy and you were at the table and you weren't unreliable and you were trying to bring uh, the allies in. I think they trust our allies, the Iranians, a lot more than they trust us because they've, until very recently, they've been in the agreement. They knew there was no violation of the agreement, but that's the path that I think is the prudent path We is to join up to the agreement, try to improve upon the agreement. Let's not forget, President Trump told us he was going to get us a better deal. We do not have a better deal now. And then to use diplomacy and work with all the countries around the world that have much deeper ties with Iran than we do to come out of this diplomatically in a way where the region is settled down. We're not just talking about Iran. I mean, we're pumping uh, military weapons, American weapons, into Saudi Arabia. So we're, we are really stirring this up in a way where you could have a, a massive regional conflict, which I don't think is the way to go here. And what is your red line with Iran? I don't think I have any red line right now. I. I uh, as, as a member of Congress, Foreign Relations Committee, defense approves, I try to look at each incident that comes up and, and apply our Constitution and try to do the very best. I obviously uh, have a preference in terms of, of force that it be the last resort. And I think most administrations that settle in with a good foreign policy team, that's where they want to be. And and it doesn't seem to me that that we're there with this administration. So we need a lot of oversight. We need to stay on top of them. Uh, and we need them to be honest with us in these secret briefings and, and briefings uh, to the American people about what is really going on.
1: And is there any chance
3: that your war authorization bill will Pass in your time, or are you worried that it's going to be stuck uh, for or indefinitely? Well, the the good thing is to know is that we had fifty one uh, senators who supported uh, our our war resolution. Uh, and that and we had the house put it in the National Defense Authorization Act uh, so we're very close between the house and the Senate it, it belonged in the Defense Authorization Act because 51 votes it was relevant to the bill it was germane to the bill except for the the uh, shenanigans that that uh, the majority leader played on us—that belonged in the bill because of the vote. Uh, now the president can veto it, and and as I've said, he has a very expansive view of of his powers under the Second Amendment.
1: Well, Senator Udall, thanks so much for joining Worldly. We really appreciate having you, and we'll
3: hope to talk to you again. Thank you. It's been great being with you, and happy to to come on again. We appreciate it. You bet. Take care.